Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it, and judge it to decide whether it should be set free <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Hello everyone, you are listening to Movie Oubliette, a transcontinental podcast with me, Dan, all the way down the bottom of the world in Melbourne, Australia. And me, Conrad, all the way up in Cambridge, UK. In this podcast, we haul a lost and forgotten film from the depths of the oubliette of obscurity to decide whether to set it free into the world to be rediscovered and appreciated or whether to cast it back down into the void that is the oubliette. We will mainly be discussing fantastic cinema, so horror, sci-fi and fantasy, because as we all agree, those are the most delectable of film genres. So Conrad, how are you today? <laughs> I'm just very impressed with your intro, I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> it's my dream come true to say it properly for once. <laughs> Well, I'm very pleased because it's raining here in England, so Ooh. all is well. It's been six or seven weeks of 30 degree heat and no rain whatsoever, well. which has been quite a shock to the system. So it's cold and it's wet, so we're, we're all feeling in our element here. <laughs> Back to complaining about the weather and how wet it is. Yeah, we love it. <laughs> <laughs> How about you? Um, yeah, I've been fine. It's been not as cold as it has been, uh, but doing well. Marvellous. So do we have any exciting things in our mailbag this week? Ah, so we've had a comment from a listener called Corey Newman, and that is in regards to our second episode uh, where we reviewed Demons. Mm -hmm. And he said, this is uh, word for word, I'm pretty sure this was the first horror movie I ever saw. My parents let me rent it when I was like 11 years old, and it actually scared the crap out of me. I was stoked that you guys <laughs> chose this one, and I planned on rewatching it after listening to your show. So it's always good to know that we're bringing back suppressed childhood trauma with every episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just ripping off that plaster and pouring lemon juice on it. That's great. Yeah, it's always good to hear. <laughs> So more comments like that, please. <laughs> Definitely. Well, I had fun because for the first time on our Twitter account, we got some reaction from a person who starred in one of the films that we covered. Ooh. So last week we were talking about Pandorum starring Ben Foster. And I tweeted something on the movie Oubliette account, follow us there, uh, about how uh, Ben Foster's brother doesn't last very long in the movie and he he quote tweeted us and said so true mm, that's very true <laughs> he's probably been resenting his brother ever since i'm sure burning <laughs> resentment yeah <Yes. laughs> i also got a comment in on our facebook page from a listener called martin taylor in regards to the third episode that we did uh, for session three and he said uh, leds were actually very rare and exotic and dim in the 70s when the film was uh, shot. 
So the LEDs that I was referring to were most likely to be grain of rice bulbs, which I had never heard of, and oh. they're apparently smaller than uh, Christmas tree lights. Oh, that's right, because you were thinking that the whole set was just full of LEDs, but mm. no. Grain of rice bulbs. I kind of like that. Marvellous. So we learn something from our listeners too. This is good. I'm always learning. <laughs> <laughs> So I guess it's my turn to take the trip over to the oubliette and pull out our film for this episode. The best part of the episode. Yeah, okay, I shall get some exercise. Got to get your steps in. Fitbit will be complaining. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on. Why is this trapdoor so flimsy all of a sudden? Oh, okay, it must be some cost-cutting. Is this made of plastic? <laughs> God, there are two very sinister-looking black helicopters and they're flying right at me. Ah, okay. Oh, do you know, a funny thing happened on the way to the oubliette. No, nothing happened. Must be a faulty console. Uh, thanks for bringing it to my attention, and I uh, will repair it shortly. I will just move swiftly on with that strange denial. <laughs> so, Conrad, what do we have for us today? Well, we have the 1978 science fiction conspiracy thriller Capricorn One, written and directed by Peter Hyams mm. and starring Elliot Gould, James Brolin, Brenda Vaccaro, Sam Waterston, and O.J. Simpson. Eee, someone I did not know even acted, but I guess it was before my time. <laughs> yes, well before all our times. If you don't want us to spoil the movie, watch the movie first, and then come back and listen to us. Mm. But yes, it's, a, it's an interesting film. Um, to summarise the plot, it's about the first manned mission to Mars, and as the film opens, the astronauts are getting into their rocket ship to be launched on their, mm. their very special and exciting voyage. And while the countdown is happening, an anonymous man in a black suit comes to them and tells them to get out mm. uh, because it's an emergency. And they are then jetted away whilst a recording of their previous uh, simulations mm. of the launch continues to play and be broadcast live. And they're then told that the reason for this is because they've discovered months before the launch that the life support system wasn't going to work and they would have died on the way to Mars. Mm. But they need to cover this up, otherwise it'll be a huge embarrassment for NASA and they'll cut their funding. So they're asked to participate in a conspiracy to fake the Mars landings mm. uh, for, the, for the good of NASA and for the good of the US space programme. Yes. With a few threats to their family thrown in for good measure. So that's the situation that the astronauts uh, find themselves in, which is pretty unusual and quite interesting. <laughs> mm, sounds riveting. I can't wait to talk about it. I know, and it's even more exciting today because we'll be Ooh. talking about it with a third person this time. Ah. We have a special guest. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to know who it is, stay with us. And we're back. So we'll be talking about Capricorn One. And as I teased before the break, we have a special guest mm. with us today is Serge, the writer-director of Cold Crash Pictures. 
Yes. Hello, sir. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to have you here because I've been a big fan of your vlogs for a long time. Thank you. I've actually, you mentioned that I am your first guest and uh, this is my first time guest starring on anything really. Ah. Well, we hope we make it a good experience for you and, and don't traumatize you in any way. <laughs> Likewise. It's also uh, worth noting that we are all in different continents, different yes. parts of the world. Uh, I'm in Melbourne. Conrad's in the UK. And Serge, you are in... I am in Chicago. Wow. Mm. Yeah, so this is the first time we've managed to add a continent, <laughs> which is yes. great. Very, uh, very particular recording schedule times. Mm. So Dan is, are we allowed to say that you're still in your PJs? I am still in my PJs, yes. I'm proud, proud PJ wearer at uh, 7.22am 7, in the morning. I think that's pretty normal. So Capricorn won. <laughs> so this is really a post-Watergate conspiracy thriller. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing about it is that, for me, is that because it's Peter Hyams, who we can talk about a little bit as a writer-director, it's sort of filtered through the summer blockbuster style of movie making, mm-hmm. um, very much following in the footsteps of Jaws. It's sort of a high concept thriller more than a gritty late 70s thriller, I thought. Mm. Yeah. Music wise, it kind of reminded me of later thrillers, and especially in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, when I, I watched it for the first time and I didn't know much about it going in, and I was, you know, sort of taken by the how the 1970s of it all uh but then in particular when the score kicked in it suddenly felt very new and very modern mm. yeah jerry goldsmith is my favorite composer mm-hmm. and this is interesting because it kind of bridges the gap between his very avant-garde work in something like planet of the apes mm-hmm. um to the sort of action material that he was doing for thrillers like air force one in the 90s mm. so it's a full orchestral score but it's still got these very jagged time signatures that throw you off guard all the time i think the main theme to capricorn one is 11 8 or something like that oh, which is right. really bizarre jerry goldsmith he did the score to alien is that him it is yes and that's ah. a very avant-garde score yeah, right. So I didn't know that Jerry Goldsmith did the score when I sat down to watch it for the first time. And so it kicked in. And my ah. literally my first thought was, wow, this guy's really ripping off Jerry Goldsmith. <laughs> <laughs> I might have paused the movie. And then I was like, oh, OK. Amazing. <laughs> but yeah, it's really rather, um, it's very emblematic in a way that I feel like it should be more popular. It should pop up more on classic movie soundtrack mm. compilations. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's a fantastic score. I mean, among... Goldsmith enthusiasts, it's often referred to as sort of a, a pinnacle in his achievement in, in action writing, for sure. But it's not just the action writing, it's the unease he gives it. There are some fantastic sequences in the movie where he is really underlining the horrible weight of the conspiracy that the astronauts are participating in. I think particularly the scene where they are stood on their fake Mars landing set Mm -hmm. and the camera is slowly panning around them while the voice of the President of the United States talking about how brave and wonderful they are and what a great vision for the future they represent. Mm. Um, And Jerry is scoring it with this... um, this real sense of sickly unease on on sustained strings and it's quite disturbing i think that that whole sequence mm, yeah yeah i thought the soundtrack was juxtaposed with the footage in particular really well really good composer in tandem with 
the director and editor there because yeah, they're the the drama is not necessarily being generated by what we're watching, but how they're juxtaposing the all this triumphant imagery taken straight from the Apollo Eleven landing footage, mm. uh, but with like you said, he's got this unease in the strings going in the soundtrack. And then, of course, that that particular scene, it's intercut with uh, not just the speech and the guys on the soundstage, but also with people cheering in bars and people hooting and hollering out on the streets of America. Mm. Uh, But then, of course, it's all a lie. It is. Yeah. I always feel like 70s action is a little bit lame. Like, I always find (laughs) just fight scenes are just a little bit, Oh, that's a bit yeah. boring. Like one punch here, a duck. Like it's all very slow moving. A new hope comes to mind. <laughs> and I always feel like um, score always makes up for the kind of lack of uh, visuals in terms of action. And and yeah, mm. Jerry Godsmith really brought his A game in terms of elevating scenes to be much more interesting than they should be. There's that scene where with the rattlesnake and the character Brubaker and he's he's kind of dueling with this rattlesnake and it's pretty boring to watch but score wise very exciting <laughs> <laughs> yeah and, and what's really interesting about Jerry particularly at this time I know later in his career he hated the fact that he had to score so much of of the films that you know you would have a two-hour movie and you'd have 90 minutes of score right, yeah. whereas uh, back in these days he was he was fairly sparse in how he spotted his movies mm. and so something like coma which is another conspiracy thriller i don't think you hear a peep out of jerry for the first half an hour maybe even 40 minutes wow. mm. and in this one Jerry is notably absent in key action sequences, particularly the the finale, which I think if people who have seen Capricorn One will remember the the helicopter biplane chase that Mm. that happens at the end. Uh, And not a peep out of Jerry throughout that whole sequence. Mm. Very similar to Bernard Herrmann's treatment of uh, another famous scene involving a a crop duster. Are you going to (laughs) say North by Northwest? Yeah, exactly. Um, Exactly. Which... Again, not a peep out of Bernard Herrmann during that entire sequence until the plane crashes. Mm. As we're recording this, it's been like a week and a half since I saw Mission Impossible Fallout, mm. which, mild spoiler, ends with a sort of helicopter chase. Mm. And it's funny, I had rewatched Capricorn 1 a couple of days before going in to see Mission Impossible Fallout. Mm. And I'm watching the finale of Mission Impossible Fallout, and I'm like, I'm just sitting there and I'm like, it's good, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> And and I was trying to recall how heavy the score was in Mission Impossible Fallout. I I can't quite recall, which is probably a testament to the stunt work, which wasn't bad. Mm. Uh, but it just it's interesting to watch the chase sequence in a brand new film, and then the chase sequence from forty years ago. Mm. If I were teaching a college course, I would show both chase sequences, and then we'd discuss them. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I was just going to say I read up about uh, that chase sequence, and apparently the stunt, the stuntman, and the choreographer as well um, said that that was the most harrowing, dangerous chase sequence that ever taken place in. Mm. so it it feels dangerous even watching it just knowing that it's it's all you know real helicopters and a real biplane there was one shot in particular during the chase where one of the military helicopters swoops in above the biplane and then it like taps its strut mm. on the plane's wing to try yeah. and like crash it mm. uh and i thought that maybe that was the one shot in the entire sequence that was sort of 
faked, mm. but then it was the 70s and maybe they did it for real. I, I don't know for that particular shot. Ah, uh, no, I looked this up. It's real. Oh, and that's, my gosh. That's the thing. It, wow. it scared the crap out of them because they had to create a special camera mount to get that shot. Mm. Right. And they were terrified while they were doing it because the one thing you really do not want to do with a helicopter and a plane mid-flight is touch each other. You just <laughs> don't, <laughs> don't want to do that. Especially when your star is looking up at you from, from the cockpit, which he is, he's mm. there. Elliot right. Gould is there. So it's, yeah, it's the kind of crazy shit that only happened in Hollywood movies in the 70s. I mean, it's n- notable that... For the Mission Impossible movie you mentioned, Serge, that they had to go to a particular country in order to do that helicopter sequence because they couldn't get the insurance coverage to do it anywhere in the US. Mm, wow. I didn't know that, but it makes sense. Well, especially with having the main star flying the helicopter himself. Yeah, and, which... and not to disparage Tom Cruise, I know he's one of the few actors who does probably more of his own stunts than anyone working today. And yeah, I'd read that he'd learned how to actually not just fly a helicopter, but actually perform the specific maneuvers in that chase. Mm. Yeah, pretty incredible. I don't think Telly Savalas is flying the crop duster in this movie. (laughs) (laughs) So Telly Savalas, he plays the... A and A, the the crop duster owner. Is that is that him? But which A is he? <laughs> exactly. Probably the funniest line. So so good. And and how he just calls everyone a pervert. Amazing. Oh yeah. Amazing. He was there for a day, and I think they actually wanted Donald Pleasance for that role. Ah, right. Oddly enough, from Halloween. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, but they went for Telly Savalas because that meant they'd get five hundred thousand more dollars from the TV network works towards the budget oh right 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 it's funny though because i didn't know who telly savalas was before i watched this movie same (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think he's he he was most famous for playing a tv detective called kojak Uh, oh right but this was sort of when he was trying to make a shift into movies and i think uh, he makes a pretty solid impression for the the short time that he's on screen. He really injects some fun into the last third of the movie, I think. Oh, yeah. he really does. So he's probably the funniest. Before he's in the movie, uh, chewing the scenery so spectacularly, <laughs> really the only source of humor is Sam Waterston's one-liners occasionally. Oh, uh, there's so many good dry wit lines. Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, actually, I think Sam Waterston's kind of... Lame. I mean, it's quite incredible that he's put in all of these life-threatening situations and he's Mm. so dedicated to being the funny guy (laughs) out of the three. (laughs) It's it's sort of admirable, but none of his jokes are actually all that funny. Yeah. (laughs) In fact, he's uh, not to get too spoilery, but there's a sequence where he is, when he's on the run, he's climbing up this cliff face. Mm. And it's this extended sequence of him climbing up these rocks and he's telling a joke to no one as he climbs up. <laughs> and then he reaches the top, and we finally get the punchline. And I suppose that's more interesting than just a three-minute shot of him climbing the rock face and not saying anything. Mm. But uh, you, you mentioned his persistent dedication to being the funny man and the image of him literally sweating as he's climbing up this rock face while telling a joke <laughs> was the perfect image for that. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I found that scene very, very in- unintentionally funny as well because he really doesn't look like he's climbing. <laughs> he looks like he's just lying down and they've just tilted the camera to make it look more vertical. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> poor guy. But while we're in the area of writing, I think it is really interesting that so much of the the dialogue in this film is fairly witty, actually, mm. it has to be said, yeah. because my memory of it was that, oh, I, I can't wait to see Elliot Gould's relationship. He's a reporter that's sort of um, investigating the conspiracy mm. as the film progresses and eventually uncovers it. And I remember him having this really great acerbic relationship with a female reporter <laughs> and the back and forth between them was really fun. But actually, they only have two scenes together. And yeah. It turns out that he actually has those kinds of conversations pretty much with everybody. Mm, yeah. <laughs> it's really strange. I found her character quite unnecessary, really. I mean, I guess, uh, I don't know, the two scenes with, with her in it, that if they were cut out, wouldn't have affected the film at all. His introductory scene is him trying to hook up with this reporter that he works with, mm -hmm. as mm. I understood it. Yes. Mm. Uh, and it was this very, it struck me as this very 1970s workplace casual sexism banter, which, which she was okay with, <laughs> seemingly. She was totally okay with it. <laughs> but what got me so much about that scene was that it comes right after one of the tenser scenes in the film, which is just these nine minutes of Hal Holbrook explaining to the astronauts why they were yanked off the launch pad and that if they don't cooperate in this, in this Martian landing hoax... <laughs> that their families are going to die. And then we smash cut to Elliot Gould desperately <laughs> trying to hook up with his co-worker. Karen Black, who mm. I primarily know for Airport 75, where she's the stewardess that's flying the plane. <laughs> oh, yeah. Bless her. It's a very strange relationship. I mean, she does actually serve a plot point in that she's the one that directs Elliot Gould to the hangar where they were making... Um, yeah, that's fake true. Landing. That's true. That's so she true. does serve a purpose other than being the person that Elliot Gould speaks to for expositional purposes. Mm. See, I was quite interested to talk um, to you about this search because you you've done a couple of fantastic blogs highlighting mm. sexist tropes in cinema. Thank you. And I was wondering how you felt about the representation of women in this movie because I kind of <laughs> I was sort of thinking maybe this is progressive because she kind of gives as good as she gets. Yeah, and certainly for me, it felt a lot more comfortable than when I recently tried to rewatch all of the airport movies and just was disgusted by the <laughs> casual sexism mm. on display in those movies. It was yeah. just appalling. So, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. And earlier I had referred to Elliot's playful banter with his coworker. I think I called it casual sexism. It mm. wasn't so much, it felt very consensual. They both liked to pal around mm. uh, and I'm fine with that. And as you said, she did meet him tit for tat, if you will. Uh, and she didn't seem annoyed by him. They seemed like good friends. Yeah. So I didn't mind that at all. But while we're on the subject of representation of women, uh, I wanted to mention the wife of the lead astronaut. So it's, mm -hmm. it's the wife of James Brolin's character. Mm. She is, there's this pivotal scene in the film where they've got a, the three astronauts have got to fake a transmission to their wives mm -hmm. and talk about how excited they are to see them and whatnot. And in this scene, James Brolin mentions a trip to Yosemite, a vacation to Yosemite. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, Elliot Gould decides that that sounded suspicious. <laughs> and so he goes to James Brolin's wife and he's like, 
was there anything about that that struck you as odd? And she goes, well, we've never been to Yosemite, but I just thought he had a lot on his mind. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. And then Elliot Gould is like, aha, he was trying to give us a clue, and then he's off to solve the case. And I just remember thinking, Mm -hmm. why why didn't the writer have the wife, I don't know, bring this suspicion to Elliot Gould's character? I just thought that... It, it almost felt like they were going out of the way to, to make sure that the wife had nothing to do. Mm. Yeah, it's, it doesn't give her a great deal of agency, does it? No. Which is disappointing. I mean, she does have a great scene where she's coming to terms with her grief in one long shot while she's reading Dr. Seuss's Fox in Socks, Bricks and Blocks. <laughs> mm. Yes, I like that shot. It's a, it's a great shot. And I also like the scene where Elliot Gould goes to speak to her and he has the same sort of crackling dialogue with her obviously not making sexual advances because she's on on the astronaut widow on the astronaut widow which would be entirely inappropriate no but they kind of have this meta conversation where she beats him to the punch and explains yes i realize that you don't want to be interrupting me and you're terribly sorry for my grief but there's a few questions you have to ask and yes and so on and she delivers all of his dialogue for him and takes all of the wind out of his sails and kind of gives the sense that look i'm not going to spend my time making you feel comfortable around me yeah just have at it and and i thought that was quite good mm, no i did too yeah now that you mention it 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 might be less she wasn't she wasn't being presented as stupid so much as disinterested mm. and from watching my videos you might not think this about me but i always try to claim sexism as the last explanation Mm. (laughs) so it's not so much that i thought the portrayal of her was sexist i just thought her disinterest was odd yes and i think you're probably right in that Mm. case i mean it's very much a product of its time and i think one thing that i thought when i was watching this is that apollo 13 feels like it owes a lot to this movie almost mm, i see that yeah it's a true story but the whole nasa wives excited and proud thing seems to come from this movie mm. and the whole plot point about the american public getting annoyed because the reruns of something were cancelled when the live broadcasts were on and i thought mm, hang on mm. that was in apollo 13 as well so I don't know whether that's life imitating art or whether it's art imitating a true story that was eventually made into art. <laughs> <laughs> mm, right. Which way round that goes. So O.J. Simpson is in this film, mm. which is its own sort of put a pin in that bullet point. <laughs> but also it made me wonder, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not familiar enough with the history of the NASA space program, but I was wondering, had there been a black astronaut in 1977. Well, this is something that I actually looked up, and I do think this is progressive because the first African American astronaut didn't actually come about until five years later when Guy Bluford went up in Challenger in 1983. Mm-hmm. Although he was selected in 1979, so I don't know wh- when is he an astronaut? When he's selected or when he actually <laughs> goes? I don't know. Mm. But I mean, it's certainly no bad thing that you get to see an African-American man as part of a a, a crew in in 1978, but then it's O.J. Simpson. (laughs) I did, I mean, yeah, this is previous to the whole court trial and everything. Um, Mm. I I did find he was a very token character. Mm. I was looking at the runtime. His first line wasn't until about 21 minutes into the film. Oh, wow. And his first line is, I want to throw up, uh, which is not very iconic. Um, and I think 
I don't think he was the first choice of the director. Yeah, I read that too. I think he had other other people in mind, but because OJ was such a rising star at the time, he had to go with him. But he just wasn't as good as an actor as he could have been. No. Um, (laughs) There's that scene where he's in the desert and he's just kind of mumbling gibberish going on about... (laughs) wanting water or something <laughs> and he starts digging it's it's a bit yeah. <laughs> ridiculous i'm gonna put this out there i found the movie tonally weird mm. like there were moments that were very funny and then there were moments that were very tense and then there were other moments that were i don't know it almost felt like two movies um, smashed into one movie so if you cut out all of the Elliot Gould stuff you could have had this kind of tense action but if you cut out all of the astronaut stuff and just had just followed Elliot Gould it could have been this very interesting like mystery thriller um, kind of film what what did you guys think so it felt like two movies bolted together Mm -hmm. uh the first one being the astronauts on the run and then the second one being elliot gould a disgruntled reporter trying to crack the case Mm. Uh, and i get that this was just a couple of years after watergate and Mm -hmm. so maybe they thought that only journalists can save Mm -hmm. the day (laughs) but i in particular i thought that cutting back and forth between the group of astronauts on the run in the desert and then elliot gould following up on these journalistic leads while people are trying to either kill him or ignore him. You mentioned tonally weird, and I agree with that assessment. Mm. I definitely think that they were trying to force two different ways of telling the story into one. For example, there's a scene where Elliot Gould Mm -hmm. finds the military base where they had been recording all the footage of the surface of Mars, and he sort of like digs around in the dirt, and he finds evidence that it had all been faked. I think he finds one of their commemorative medallions Mm. as proof that they had been there. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like it would have worked better in a film where the audience hadn't been watching what was going on with the astronauts the entire time. Exactly. Mm. I I completely agree. Yeah. If they'd just not shown us that the astronauts were faking it and they revealed it halfway through the movie, it could have been such a great plot twist um, that was completely unexpected. (laughs) Yeah, I I agree with that as well. I think if the audience just saw the Martian mission going on and maybe they gave us one little bit of foreshadowing and then Mm. halfway through the film, yeah, we find out that they've been on Earth the whole time. That would have been quite a mind blow, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. I mean, I I do agree that that it is two films. It's like I said, it's it's kind of like uh, a post-Watergate thriller plus a high-concept summer crowd pleaser. Right. The interesting thing to me about that is that following in the footsteps of Woodward and Bernstein and all the president's men, you would have thought that the journalism half of it would have been the um, more serious procedural thriller and the astronauts faking the Mars landing would have been a little bit more fantastical and mm. exciting. But what got me is that the astronaut parts of it are played dead straight apart from Sam Waterston. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, Elliot Gould is going around having meta conversations with everyone, <laughs> which is... So even... Tonally, in each half, it's kind of not what I was expecting. Yeah, you mentioned Elliot Gould running around having metatextual conversations. Mm. He's got his boss at the newspaper 
they they actually have a conversation where the boss is like, this is the part where you tell me that that you've got a big lead and I'm going to tell you you've got a week or something like that. And the conversation goes back For, and forth. 48 hours, yeah. Yeah, yeah, 48 hours. And, uh, and then when he bails him out of prison, he leaves him on like, frankly, I don't give a damn. I know. It's, it's something I can both laugh at while I'm watching it and also being like, why is this in this movie? <laughs> so many references. But yeah, tonally, it's just so strange because two astronauts have been assassinated in the desert and meanwhile, we're supposed to be having all these laughs. <laughs> hang on, hang on. Were they assassinated, the astronauts? Mm-hmm. Yes, they were killing them. I did not realise that. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay, wow. That's That makes it so much more <laughs> intense now, knowing that. <laughs> oh, okay. I mean, you, you don't see it because, of course, the twist is that because the heat shield fails, the capsule burns up and then... Brubaker and co realize that they've got to make a run for it because mm-hmm. they're effectively dead. So yeah. they've got nothing to lose. So they all pile into this airplane and then they realize they're out of fuel. They crash land and then they they just wing it in the desert. Just go, okay, we'll just go in opposite directions. We'll see what happens yeah. with no supplies, one can of water each, and a, <laughs> and a, a shard of glass. Is that what they have? <laughs> I thought it was nice that the survival kit included three of each item. Yeah, lucky. That's true. <laughs> it's almost like they have this in mind. <laughs> There's actually a line which we've been talking about metatextual moments in the film. There's a line right before they all split up where I think James Brolin says something like, "There's too much to say, so let's just get going." Mm-hmm. It's almost it's almost like a meta commentary on like the flippancy with which they're like, "Well, I guess." We're on the run now. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and Sam Waterston, the ever-reliable Sam Waterston, says, I feel like we're on Mars. Yeah. Mm, and mm. Bill Butler, the, the cinematographer, who who was also the cinematographer on Jaws, I noted, um, pulls the camera up mm. as the three of them, one of them's going north and one of them's going west and one of them's going east or something. So that's mm. yeah. basically every direction except the one they've come from. And the camera pulls mm. up to reveal this endless barren landscape Mm. and it's a fantastic shot and again brilliantly scored by mr goldsmith Mm -hmm. um i mean if we wanted to move on to direction uh, how do we think mr hyams did directing this movie so it's interesting to think of peter hyams as a director Mm. for me anyway because one of the very first bits of trivia i read about him is that he serves as his own cinematographer Mm. Uh, for at least the later part of his career. I think it actually started with, uh, he directed 2010, Mm. uh, the sequel to 2001, Mm -hmm. and he acted as cinematographer on that. He acted as cinematographer on The Relic, which was my first exposure to his oeuvre. Mm. Um, But anyway, getting back to the original question, if I noticed anything about Peter Hyams' directorial style in this particular film, I'd say that he seems to be very much in sync with all of the other people involved in the production, Mm -hmm. which sounds, I don't know, that sounds very generalized, but I always thought when the shot needed to communicate something or when the score needed to communicate something or when two shots needed to be juxtaposed in the right way, it all hit. Mm. It's like even if you don't agree with the film, it was the exact kind of film it wanted to be moment to moment. And I feel like you've got to give the director credit for much of that mm. for being able to operate all of 
the keys all at the same time. Mm. One of the things I get when I watch it, certainly from the get-go, the opening sequence, is just how economical it is and how much it it just doesn't waste a single moment Mm. just to convey information to the audience in an interesting way. So you've got titles on a black screen with Jerry Goldsmith thundering away telling you something serious is happening here. It just crashes to black with a date across the screen, which gives you a strong sense of uh, documentary realism or something like this. This is something that happened, maybe. Mm. Um, And then the sun rises over Cape Canaveral um, while you're hearing a NASA spokesperson sort of relaying information about the mission, so you learn everything about the mission, you get a scene of the astronauts getting ready to get into their capsule and a NASA employee stands and talks to them about how much this mission means to him and how proud of them uh, he is and how this is a culmination of his life's work. Mm-hmm. So you get the sense of why these guys are doing it and what this means and what what the the grander uh, auspices of this whole endeavour are. And straight after that, you get the corrupt politicians arguing over their complementary binoculars. (laughs) (laughs) And you get the tension between uh, budget and political power. So you sort of pretty much get Everything, all the major themes of the movie laid out for you fairly quickly and economically and in different and interesting ways. And when you get to the conspiracy unfolding and you have four and a half minutes of the camera just slowly pushing in on the fantastic Hal Holbrook delivering a monologue. Standout speech there. It is. It's electrifying. Hal Holbrook, Mm. God bless Mm. him. He is still with us. He is 93. Mm. (laughs) Wow. But he is still with us. And he specialised in this kind of thing. He was in All the President's Men. He was Deep Throat. And uh, he was also in charge of a corrupt vigilante cop group in the Dirty Harry sequel Magnum Force. Ah. So he's played this kind of guy before. (laughs) You mentioned his four-minute monologue, which I I also had my instinct was to time that speech. (laughs) And then after his four-minute monologue, they walk into the next room, which is the Martian soundstage. Mm. And he sort of has, it's not a monologue, but it's another four-minute scene Mm -hmm. of just him and the three astronauts just kind of talking Mm -hmm. about the situation, which I thought was, it was really bold. It added up to just eight minutes of these four guys in two rooms talking to each other. Mm -hmm. And the way that it, it wasn't just the dialogue that generated tension, but and not just the cinematography, but also... The blocking, mm. uh, which you don't necessarily know which specific brain to credit for that. But I noticed there was this one particular shot where Hal Holbrook is facing the three astronauts, and the three astronauts are facing Hal Holbrook, and they all adopt these stances that really perfectly define their mental states at the time. Mm-hmm. I think O.J. Simpson turns his back. Yeah. James Brolin just kind of like squares off against Hal Holbrook rather adversarially. Anyway, I just thought that was a scene that combined dialogue and acting and blocking and cinematography really mm. well. Mm. Yes, and when Hal Holbrook mentions that their families are under threat, it cuts to a different angle on the three astronauts with all the lights behind them, yeah. which puts an enormous amount of pressure on them. Which, yeah, mm. it's it's difficult to pin down Hyams as an auteur, particularly because he's worked in so many different genres. Yeah, I mean, everything from buddy cop comedy with Running Scared 
to um, crime thrillers like Narrow Margin and The Presidio. Mm. He did a uh, he did Time Cop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so some Jean Claude Van Damme movies in there for good measure. <laughs> so it's it's kind of difficult to say this is who he is. He and you don't want to call him a journeyman director because that gives you a sense that he's mediocre. He seems to do a very good job regardless of what he's mm-hmm. given. I would say right. Mm. Um, also, that scene uh, on the soundstage, I thought. It looked amazing, like cinematography wise and lighting wise. It just really popped as a just an iconic scene. Yeah, I noticed the the ground of the soundstage slopes up to that sort of background that they've got painted on the wall. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting that you're looking at the soundstage that they've concocted, and you realize, oh yeah, this this would only fool someone from one angle. Mm-hmm. Uh, which of course that's that's all that they need because it's going to be faked through the camera yeah Mm. from one angle which is where um, peter hyams got the idea apparently he was working with cbs when they were uh, covering the apollo missions and he suddenly realized that you're looking at this historic moment and rather than having many witnesses or many cameras you just had one camera Uh and it suddenly struck him you could fake this now of course conspiracy (laughs) theories have abound ever since (laughs) about whether this this thing actually happened or not the moon landing indeed yeah Mm. (laughs) now it's time for random trivia okay and now it's one of my favorite parts of the podcast it's where dan thrills us with some random trivia and i think because we have a guest we'll make this a free-for-all and anyone can chip in (laughs) with some random trivia but dan let's start with you for tradition's sake Mm. what's your random trivia moment so this the film we're doing capricorn one there are a number a number of scenes that were just really well filmed so well filmed they have been used in other tv shows and movies so uh, the runaway car scene where elliot gould's character he's in his car and nothing's working all the brakes are not working uh, and he's just steaming ahead in this runaway car with fast forwarded footage <laughs> and it's been used in other movies apparently as well as the dog fight scene at the end with the helicopters so um the helicopter scene has been used in episodes of the fall guy which is a 1981 TV series, and also The A-Team in the 80s. And in The A-Team, I believe they had to add a shot to show that the helicopter pilots got out unscathed because The A-Team, no matter how many bullets flew and cars crashed, nobody got a scratch Mm. on them. Yeah, and you could always know, like you would see cars and planes exploding but you, then you would hear after it are you okay <laughs> yep i'm okay i'm all good <laughs> there's amazing. also uh if you've seen hulk from 2003 the extended chase sequence at the end of the film where all the military's might is pursuing the hulk through the desert uh-huh. anytime you go back and watch every single time a helicopter crashes you hear the pilot over the radio saying, I'm okay, but get that thing off me. <laughs> they wanted to make very clear that Hulk was creating zero collateral damage. Anyone else with trivia? I have a random bit of trivia. Okay. Yes. This film stars two of Barbara Streisand's husbands. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> uh, Elliot Gould and James Brolin have both been at times married to Barbara Streisand. Wow. Indeed, yeah. And James is still married. In yes. fact, they just celebrated their 20th anniversary. Ah. And Barbara, of course, is famous for cloning 
her favourite dog. She is. <laughs> she yes, cloned she... her favourite dog. <laughs> yeah, she cloned. <laughs> she cloned her favourite dog. So perhaps if she particularly likes this husband, maybe she will clone him too. We will wait and see. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> so that was our random trivia moments. Yeah. I wanted to quickly touch on, uh, often when I watch sci-fi movies, I'm always picking out all the scientific inaccuracies. Mm. So do, do, I don't know, a few things here. You know, when they were stepping out of the spacecraft onto the fake Mars and it was Mm. televised, um, they did this thing where they put it on slow-mo as they were jumping off the platform. (laughs) And I thought, doesn't Mars have a similar gravity to Earth? (laughs) Wouldn't they just jump down normally? So I looked it up and and Mars is actually smaller than Earth. So it has, the gravity is only 38%. Um, of what Earth's gravity is, so there would have been a little bit of a, de- of a delay as they jumped off, but not that much, I don't think. Mm. Ah. But a few other things, you know, they're they're faking this. So when they shoot the rocket ship into space, is it just it's orbiting Earth? Uh, I assume just for fun while it while they're off going to Mars, and then after that, it's sent back down to Earth, and. No one notices that? No one notices there's a rocket just orbiting around Earth, like all all the people in charge? (laughs) Well, so one person noticed that the signals were coming in too quickly, that the rocket ship couldn't be broadcasting from Mars. Yes, and he doesn't last very long, does he? He (laughs) disappears, and the next time Elliot uh, Gould goes to visit him, uh, because he just happens to be a friend of his. Mm. His apartment is being occupied by a completely random woman who even has the magazine subscriptions to prove it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just... I thought that scene was very unnerving. But at the same time, I already knew what was happening. So if they just edited out all the astronaut stuff for the first half of the movie, that mo- that, that scene could have been really, really unnerving. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's all part of the whole conspiracy thriller mm. tropes of, of the time. So the establishment as this monolithic, all-encompassing evil that will stop at nothing to preserve its lies and, and secrets and preserve the status quo. And sure. there was this fantasy of people disappearing at the hands of men in dark suits and sunglasses. But in this case, what's interesting about it is that the, the men in black are black helicopters, which is different. Mm, I found, yeah, so the, the three astronauts are fleeing in the desert, are chased by these two helicopters that I thought they were, they were like characters among themselves. Like I felt I felt they were almost like cartoon characters and they would just hover around but, and, and, and be like, do you see any astronauts? No, don't see any this way. Let's go over here. And then they just move <laughs> over here. And it's like, any over here? Nope. Okay, let's go over here. It just it was like... Unintentionally funny for me. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, there's this scene towards the end of the film where James Brolin is the last of the three astronauts who's still Mm -hmm. running around and kicking uncaptured. And he comes across civilization uh, in the form of a gas station. And so Mm -hmm. it's closed down. He has to break in. And so he's ransacking the place looking for change so that he can call someone from the payphone. Mm -hmm. And I believe he looks first in the cash register and there's nothing and then he looks in the soda machine and he finds one coin so he can make one call and he makes the call to his family and they don't pick up the phone because they're mm-hmm. out and about. 
And so he's all dejected and he slumps down to the ground next to this big giant window. And then we see the helicopters come into frame. Yes. Now, all of that was good. But I, again, in terms of pacing, I was wondering why didn't the helicopters come into that scene earlier to maybe ratchet up the tension just a little bit. Oh, <laughs> yeah, while he was looking for the coin, that would have been good. Make it a little bit more urgent. It is quite a fun shot, though, isn't it? It is. That's it's true. It's it's the they're behind you, <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I mean. It, it's it's easy to it's easy for me to sit here forty years after the fact and be like, oh, you know what would have improved this good scene and made it great? This detail. <laughs> Um, But it is still a very good scene Oh it's a great scene Uh, Also I find it funny watching older movies And coming across situations That you would never come across now So the fact that he was searching for a coin I thought he was searching for a drink I thought he was like you know (laughs) He'd just been in the desert for a few, few days He was looking for a coke or something, but no, a coin in order to operate a telephone that's <laughs> attached to a wall. Oh, I thought that was funny. As I'm thinking back on that shot where the two helicopters appear through the window behind James Brolin right when he sits down, mm. all dejected and sad, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking that must have been one hell of a shot to just arrange mm. because there was no CGI. I thought that too. Yeah, they would have been in radio contact with the helicopter pilots. Yeah. They would have probably had to do that scene a few times. Mm. Um, and then if it didn't work, they would have to get the helicopters to fly back <laughs> to where they were, <laughs> which would have taken a while. Yeah, it must have taken quite a few takes, yeah. maybe. Yeah, there's a lot of that. I mean, there's the, the second time you see the helicopters, they they rise up from behind this sand dune, do this weird anthropomorphic, thing where they look at each other and then <laughs> and then decide on a new direction and swoop off and then James Brolin emerges from the sand dune that's been out of focus in the foreground all the time and we rack focus as he shakes the sand off himself so he's been lying there mm-hmm. the whole time and you, you realize if the focus puller had did not hit the spot or you know, the, the sand hadn't come off and stuck in his eyes or something yeah. they'd have to circle those helicopters around and do the whole thing again yeah, yeah. it's that kind of thing that makes me love this period of movie making because mm. you look at it and think wow a lot of work went into this yeah for sure for sure there's no fixing it in post no no not at all i thought in terms of theme it definitely felt this movie definitely felt like because of the time perhaps in which it was made right after watergate that the journalist had to save the day <laughs> yeah he does. I mean, it's it's not as black as some of the post-Watergate conspiracy thrillers were. Definitely. So this one has much more of a, a crowd-pleasing ending with, spoiler alert, <laughs> James Brolin uh, running in to interrupt <laughs> his own, his own yeah. funeral, <laughs> which is quite iconic. But again, an example of something that I talked about uh, in, in our last episode it's stop printed. It's that slow motion where they didn't do slow motion at the time. They just reprint the same frame over and over again, and the the gaps get longer and longer and longer. Do, do you want to know just how slow they advance the frame? Because I counted. Oh yes. Oh, go for it. The film advances eighteen frames in eleven seconds. Wow, <laughs> that's pretty bad. I think that's about one fifteenth the speed of 24 frames per second. Yeah. It did really take you out of the scene because it was just like, wow, this is taking a long time. And <laughs> it didn't feel like 
classic slow motion. <laughs> That's not good. It's really not. Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Moobly Awards. Yes, welcome to the Moobly Awards, which is where we nominate some of our favourite parts of the film in a number of completely frivolous categories. And this time it'll be even more fun with our guests. So let's get started with our usual first category, favourite quote. And with all that crackling dialogue that we've talked about, there's going to be a lot of choice selections here, I suspect. So, Serge, what was your favourite? Uh, probably, so it would have to be one of the Sam Waterston quips mm. of the many to choose from my favorite was when they're faking a transmission back to their wives and the very first thing that Sam Waterston says when his wife is like how are you he says I told you never to call me here (laughs) (laughs) that's actually a pretty good one yeah one of my favorites is when somebody they realize the heat shield has failed and and they're all ostensibly dead Brolin is trying to hammer this into them our lives are in danger here and he says we're dead and Sam says, shit, and I was such a terrific guy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I really like. Dan, what about you? I mean, this is a pretty classic quote from the movie. Uh, it's when they're waiting in the room and Dr. Calloway comes in. And uh, I think Sam Waterstein again <laughs> says, hello, Dr. Calloway. Nice to see you. A funny thing happened on the way to Mars. <laughs> <laughs> that could be the tagline for the movie. <laughs> yeah. It could be, actually. It would sum up the tone quite well. (laughs) So we're in the 70s. Sexism abound. But (laughs) aside from that, what is the most typically 70s moment? I mean, the thing that struck me the most as an ex-smoker is just how much smoking goes on in this movie. Mm -hmm. And in every conceivable place, NASA control rooms. I'm surprised the astronauts didn't light up inside the module, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Serge, what did you think? My most 70s scene is when the cops bust in on Elliot Gould's apartment to search it and then discover some planted cocaine. And the first thing the cop does is taste it, of course. (laughs) First thing they teach you in detective school. Yeah, you have to rub it on your gums or something, don't you? (laughs) I could just imagine some other movie from the 70s where, like, they're busting up some heroin den and the cop, like, ties the knot around his arm and, like, cooks it on a spoon and injects it. He's like, yep, this is heroin. (laughs) Dan, how about you? Um, So I think my most 70s moment, which is more prevalent in cop movies and action movies, but it happened in, in this movie as well. So Elliot Gould's character, he's in his car, It's he's lost control, he's driving around, and then he drives off a bridge into the water in slow motion, <laughs> which is pretty standard scene in every single 70s action movie. You have to drive your car <laughs> off a bridge into the water. Well, and as you pointed out in the trivia moment, it probably is in every cop show. It's just it's this scene. <laughs> <laughs> True. It's Exactly. Reused. How about best hair or clothing? In terms of hair, I just noticed that Sam Waterston's hairstyle hasn't changed in 40 years. <laughs> That's true. Right. It's just gone slightly grey. <laughs> Which is fine. It worked great for him. but It does, yeah. He struck gold when he picked his first hairstyle and just, yeah, it's lasted. It's great. I mean, my favourite is Hal Holbrook. Uh, bless Hal Holbrook. Is that epic quiff and side parting that he's got going on there. Mm -hmm. Uh I mean, I don't know how much hairspray is involved in that level of quiff. 
<laughs> but it, it, it's pretty serious that one yeah favorite scene do we have a favorite scene i mean i'm i'm going to take first dibs on the helicopter biplane chase mm. which ah. i just think stops the movie dead because it's so fantastic mm. it definitely wakes you up mm. and again it's i think it's because you know it's all practical because this is the pre-cgi era and this was the era when they would do crazy things with helicopters mm. yeah but what was so especially jarring about the scene was not just its execution, but I'm trying to think of what approximated an action scene up until that point in the film. I think uh, I think maybe one of the characters broke into a run at some point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think there's there's the breakout scene, which is probably the most famous um, cue from from Goldsmith because it's intercutting between uh, speechifying on Hal Holbrook's part, saying what fine men they were and what a shame it was that they're dead, and them trying to escape and steal yeah. a plane. But other than that, I don't think you had a great deal. You're right. So, Serge, what was your favorite scene? So, mine was definitely, it, it started with the four-minute Hal Holbrook monologue. Mm. And then they walk into the next room, and then the scene continues for another four minutes of these guys mm. just talking it out and kind of assessing the stakes, not just the circumstances, but also the stakes, which remain unstated for as long as possible. In fact, I think Hal Holbrook has a line in there where he's like, what, do you want it spelled out for you? Mm. They just hold back on articulating the threat for as long as possible. And for those eight minutes, it's just, I love, especially in action movies or espionage movies or some movie that's that focuses on loud external conflict, you've just got these moments where it's just people talking in a room and it couldn't be more tense. Mm. Mm. And it's a lost art. You, 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 Well, I don't know. Maybe that's just me, but I kind of feel like this. You don't get to see this kind of dialogue delivered this well yeah. very often anymore. So, Dan, how about you? What was your favorite scene? Uh, my favorite scene was the funniest scene uh, was when the Telly Savalas character is talking to Elliot Gould. It's <laughs> um, <laughs> a, a really hilarious scene with a lot of just <laughs> completely out of the blue hilarious lines yeah yeah I, I i do love the back and forth on the how much does it cost to hire your 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 crop dusting plane <laughs> to, to dust some crops and he says 25 dollars and he says okay i want to hire it and he says okay a hundred dollars you just said 25 and he says well you're not a farmer and i think you're a pervert <laughs> because that's Telly Savalas' answer to everything in this movie. You're a, you're a pervert. It is. It is. <laughs> fantastic. Again, another shot in the arm in the third act, I think. Yeah. Mm. So, cliche time. What did we think is the most cliched moment? My, for me, it would be the freeze frame at the end uh -huh. of the movie. <laughs> yeah. I think, you t yeah, that was mine too. <laughs> yeah. Although, as I've mentioned before, the, the wonderful... Uh, Harry Potter movie, the Azkaban movie, which is probably the best one, finishes with a freeze frame, which kind of <laughs> almost undoes the, the two and a half hours of great work that, that Alfonso Cuaron had done up until that point. Mm, yeah. Um, but there we go. So, Dan, what about you? What, what was your cliche? So, it wasn't really cliche in terms of 70s, but it was cliche in terms of deserts. Yeah. So every time people, characters seem to go into the desert, they're always likely uh, to run across either a rattlesnake or a scorpion. <laughs> and in this movie, we see both of them. <laughs> yeah. But to, we do. To the film's credit, I'm 
they, there was a real scorpion and it wasn't like an emperor scorpion, which is those mm. big black scorpions that you see in every film and they're not poison. Well, I mean, they are poisonous, but they can kill like crickets with their poison. Uh-huh. Uh, it wasn't an emperor scorpion. It was an actual like desert yellow scorpion, which seemed a lot wow. more dangerous and it was almost made it all the way to his eye, which was <laughs> open for much of the shot. <laughs> Yeah, and it's James Brolin himself, and it's not on a sheet of glass. Right, exactly. Right, yes. It's pretty cool. How about effects? Now, this being the 70s, a lot of practical effects in here. Do we have a favorite special effect, practical or otherwise? What I particularly liked was in the final chase sequence with the helicopters and the biplane. I think I mentioned it earlier, but the helicopter uses its landing strut to tap the top of the biplane's wing Mm -hmm. and I assumed that that was done with toys or something. I did not, I just assumed that they would not attempt a stunt that risky, but then apparently it was real. Yeah, it's real, which is, yeah, really scary. (laughs) Yeah. I think there's another moment like that that I thought was good, which is when they're stealing the plane to get away from the hangar, um, the, the random guys in dark suits, the men in black, park two cars across the runway to try and stop them and they just manage to get away but they lose um, one piece of landing gear and it actually does fire up in the air as they're going over the cars now I've no doubt that they weren't actually all that close and we're just seeing uh, you know a very long lens so that the um, distance is crushed but still to sequence it so that the men in front are diving onto the ground and the cars are shaking and the landing gear f- fires up and bounces across the screen as though it's come off the plane. I thought mm-hmm. that's that's pretty amazing. And again, a lot of coordination to pull that off. Mm. Now that you mention it, in a couple minutes later, when the plane basically has a glorified crash, an emergency mm-hmm. landing, they they obviously, I don't think they really crashed the plane, but they, they did a good job, I thought, of hiding the landing gear. Mm. Mm hiding the point at which the plane comes into contact with the desert floor it's it's clearly landing on a runway and they're just kicking up a bunch of dust but i thought they hit it in a way that didn't yank you out of the movie it never reminded me that it was a special effect until right now yes mm. yeah it's it's very very well done and again another example of peter hyams being really clued in with every single member of his crew to pull off a, a sequence like that mm mm-hmm. So Dan, uh, I really liked the the runaway car scene. Even though you could tell uh, the footage was just being sped up, um, so they they rigged <laughs> the cameras that it was like attached to the front of the car. So it felt like you were just as an audience watching the film, you felt you were really getting propelled forward as if you were in one of those VR videos or whatever. Um, so yeah, I thought that was really well choreographed and, and, and shot. Mm-hmm. Okay, so from visual effects to sound effects, do we have a favourite sound effect? And I always swing by Dan first being the sound designer that he is. <laughs> so 70s sound and film is always <laughs> pretty bad. Um, things always um <laughs> This wasn't so bad. Like you could, there was a decent amount of foley and stuff in there. Um, I, I found the sound that they use. So, the character Brew Baker, uh, played by James Brolin, he's he's hiding from the helicopters. He's buried in sand, and when he emerges, it sounds like he's he's emerging from an egg or something. It's like this crackling sound, <laughs> as the ground kind of crackles <laughs> as he as he comes up from the sand. And I thought, what what is going on? How long has he been in that sand for? 
It's <laughs> a lot of sweat, maybe, <laughs> congealing. Uh, that's nasty. I mean, for me, I quite liked, and I'm not sure whether this is the sound designer or whether it's Mr. Goldsmith, but the um, buzzing synthesizer noise that uh, announces that one of the astronauts has flatlined. Ah, um, yes. When the heat shield fails, and so they have all of the astronauts... Um, heart monitors flatline and it's one after the other and each one of them has a slightly different pitch and the end result oh wow is this mounting tension of discord so it just mm. gets worse as the scene progresses and i'm not sure whether that was um, jerry because he was he was all in for his synthesizer experimentation in those days uh-huh. but yeah i thought it was a very effective way of ramping up the tension in the scene mm. great and search if i've got a favorite sound effect it's probably when sam waterston climbs that cliff telling his joke and then he delivers the punchline at the top and then okay, we're, since we're spoiling everything there are the two military helicopters waiting for him at the top and the camera <laughs> zooms way out so you see the entire cliff face the entire desert landscape and over this shot he just keeps repeating the punchline and, <laughs> the it, roof. and it just the roof <laughs> yeah yeah and it's and it just keeps reverberating wider and wider <laughs> as the shot goes wider and wider and i thought that was i was gonna throw out the word effective but i'm not sure if that's the right word it was uh Say emblematic. Let's euphemistically say emblematic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think you're edging towards cliched there. But <laughs> uh, so on to our star rating for fake blood, which is a category that I think that we've increasingly regretted the more that we've done non-horror films. But <laughs> we are where we are. There's very little blood in this movie. There is one particular scene that has blood in it, notable for being, uh, I suspect, real blood in it, when James Brolin, is, who plays astronaut Brubaker, is hiding out in a cliff, and I suppose he's very hungry, He's confronted by a rattlesnake and he smashes its head with a rock and then he flips it over and then slices open its belly and then exposes its innards, lifts the snake carcass to his mouth and then takes a sort of hesitating chew on it. (laughs) And that was either the greatest prosthetic snake I've ever seen or they really killed some poor snake and made Josh Brolin take a bite out of it on camera. (laughs) Oh, no. You could really feel the sense of, I don't want to do this on his face. (laughs) I have this sort of unofficial policy when it comes to animals' use in film. As a rule, I don't want any animal to die just for the sake of a movie, but I also have this this little loophole where if somebody eats the animal, (laughs) then it's serving some purpose other than entertainment. Right. So I don't know. (laughs) That might sound like a lame rationalization, but I I, I did think to myself, well, at least he took a bite. (laughs) Well, I think I did some research into this and I think I read somewhere that this, that it wasn't actually a dead snake and he wasn't actually eating snake meat. Uh, it's oh, actually, cool. it's actually tuna. Oh, oh, yeah. He's actually scoffing down on some tuna and ketchup. That makes me feel a lot better. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, it was the one scene that airlines demanded that they cut from the movie before they would show it. 
Oh, wow. Ah. Various plane crashing incidents, no problem, but eating a snake, yuck. (laughs) (laughs) So our final category is funniest scene, which is usually, in Dan's case, the most inappropriate (laughs) 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 laughter. So, Dan, what have you got for us this time? Um, So... We've mentioned it before. I found the helicopters just hilarious. I mean, it was ridiculous. <laughs> the fact, the, the way that they would rise up and then turn to each other is as if they were discussing something and then just turn off <laughs> and then fly away in a different direction. It was, I don't know. I don't know what they were thinking with that, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, it's a shame. I think the anthropomorphization of them is, is, a, is a mistake because otherwise they're so, they are good as iconic representations yeah. of this oppressive faceless organization that's out to get mm. them i don't know why they look at each other all the time it's so, <laughs> it's so daffy oh, it's hilarious though <laughs> for me although you liked it actually i do find the the undercranking on the runaway car scene hilarious <laughs> i wish he they just shot it straight and just had him going at a normal speed yeah i know i know and it, it, that scene did kind of go for a bit longer than it should have like he he's driving a fair distance before he, he goes off <laughs> well, the bridge. he's got to find a bridge right <laughs> i guess so <laughs> preferably one over water yeah 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 and he's probably looking for some stacks of fruit and guys <laughs> with, with a pane of glass or something yeah yeah Ro- roadworks and 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 signs <laughs> to drive through a stroller that's yeah. not actually carrying a baby (laughs) (laughs) yeah definitely just a pile of cans oh all the cliches no i any undercranking on scenes like that i just think why did they think this was a good idea in the 70s It, it, it happens in bond movies too and it's it's such a shame and that is the moobly awards Okay, so it's that time of the podcast for the final verdict. Do you two gents think this movie should be shot out into fake space? (laughs) Or do you think it should be thrown back into the dungeons of the oubliette? Conrad, you chose this film. What did you think? Well, I I picked this film because I think it's a a really fun example of of uh, the late 70s conspiracy cycle. It has a science fiction-y element to it. It's got some great performances, some fantastic dialogue, some ingenious cinematography, and a Jerry Goldsmith score that puts many scores to shame, quite frankly. So I, yeah, I still think watching it again, I mean, I'm obviously I can see that in comparison to modern movie making, it takes a long time and takes a few leaps that perhaps uh, a film today wouldn't take, like four minutes of one person speaking. But I'd like it for that. I mean, a, a lot of the things that it takes its time over and a lot of the things that it does, I actually really enjoy. So I would have to say, I do think it should be more appreciated and, and more widely known. So, I mean, I'm all still thumbs up. I don't think it's childhood nostalgia talking. I think it really deserves to be preserved. Serge is our guest. What did you think? I too think that it should be liberated 
in all honesty, mm. I have no clue how it ended up in the oubliette in the first place. <laughs> Even by modern standards, it's got it's got a score that sounds very much contemporary. It's got. Mm. Uh, actors who are high profile even still today mm. even if it's just kind of a trivia you say that O.J. Simpson is at it and people go what? Mm. but even uh, <laughs> and then even James Brolin most theater goers these days they know him as oh the father of Josh Brolin but then uh, mm. Sam Waterston everybody still recognizes him mm. so yeah I feel like there's a lot of reasons why this film would be popular today and it's kind of I stumbled upon it completely by accident while going down some Wikipedia rabbit hole, and I have no idea why it's not more popular. <laughs> Dan, how about you? Because you had not seen this film before. Yeah, um, well, I think, um, I, I do think it's a great film, but I do think it has flaws. Uh, I found tonally it was really a bit all over the place, and it almost felt like it didn't quite know what sort of film it was. And even mm. even pacing wise, it, it had such strange acts to it. I guess like the first act was quite contained, and then they were in the desert, and that just seemed really strange to me that they would just willingly try to survive the desert. And then the the final dog fight was incredibly action packed, but it kind of came out of nowhere. I didn't expect it, but. In saying all of that, acting was amazing. The editing and cinematography was amazing. The story itself was really interesting, and I'm I'm surprised it hasn't been done before. I feel like this film was very 70s, and I would actually love it to be remade mm. uh, in the modern era with sort of more modern, just mod- <laughs> more modernized, I guess. Uh, but yeah, it's it's kind of one of those films that had a lot going for and it, w- it was almost there, but didn't quite do it as well as, you know, other films like Alien or, I mean, the completely different genre of film. But yeah, I do think it should be released. It appears that we are... All in agreement. So there is going to be no need for the coin of fate this week. No. <laughs> there wouldn't have been anyway, unless I was really confused. <laughs> Ambivalent or something. Yeah. <laughs> Meh, don't know. Okay, so I guess this little guy should be strapped to a rocket and set free. <laughs> What's with all these lights and cameras, though? <laughs> I know, it's strange. <laughs> So very pleased to see another one of, of my choices escaping the fold. Dan, what are you going to be hauling out for us to talk about next time? I thought we could do a double blind episode. <gasps> so we're going to choose a film that we both have not seen. It's scary. So the film that we will be taking a look at next time is a 1985 horror called The Stuff. <gasps> Oh, stuff. <laughs> I haven't seen it either, uh, which is interesting, but it's on my Netflix queue. Ah. Oh, it's on Netflix in the US. Amazing. Oh, the, the Netflix mailing service. Ah, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be fun. But sadly, Surge will not be with us. <laughs> I'll be with you in spirit. Yes, but it has been fun. Thanks for joining us for this episode. Thank you so much for having me. You've been uh, a lot better at this than we have been. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, look out for Serge's podcast coming soon, I'm sure. (laughs) So where can we find you, Serge? So my videos are on YouTube under the the channel name Cold Crash Pictures. 
cold crash pictures for every single social handle except uh, Twitter. It had to be cold crash pics. And if anybody is interested in following us on our socials and commenting, then you can find us at Movie Oubliette on all of our channels. And if you're not quite sure how to spell Oubliette, it's something like this. Wait, wait, I think there was an issue with my with the transmission. Uh, could you could you say that one more time? Okay, there, got it. Yeah, I think that'll do the trick. Oh, uh, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or whatever other podcast platform you're using really helps us out. Yes, and affirms our self-worth. <laughs> it sure does. Can confirm. <laughs> okay, well, thanks to our guest and thanks to all of you guys listening. And uh, see us next time. Bye for now. Bye. Bye. Of this tend to forget Come with us and